Okay, this is an oral history interview uh, for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas with Mike Glasner. We're in the Washington, D.C. law offices of Alston and Byrd, and today is Tuesday, March 11th, 2008, and I'm Brian Williams. Mike, let's start with a little bit of your Kansas back roots and background. Uh, sure. Uh, I came to live in Kansas in 1972. I was eight years old and uh, moved there to live with my oldest sister and her husband. My brother and I both did that on a farm outside of Peabody, Kansas, which is in south-central Kansas, uh, northeast of Wichita, about 50 miles. So I grew up in rural Kansas in the 70s and uh, attended the University of Kansas. I graduated in 1981, 1985. So at prior, before... Uh, your graduation, you were probably aware of Senator Dole quite a bit. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I was. I be actually became aware of him, I think, in 1974. I was relatively young. I was 11 years old, I think, when he was running for his re-election to the Senate for his second term. And the county I lived in, Marion County, was a very Republican area. And so there was, I recall very clearly, a lot of uh, Dole materials and signs. And I also can you know, remember some of the TV spots that were run at that time. That was really what sparked my interest in politics was uh, that 74 race. As a matter of fact, I uh, and some of my uh, cronies uh, became somewhat well-known for doing a lot of bumper sticker uh, raids for Dole for Senate and parking lots of football games and so forth, so not necessarily authorized. So uh, I was a Dole, became a Dole campaign activist at 11 years old in the uh, Marion County. And never look back. Never look back. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, you weren't uh, in the dirty tricks. Uh, no, no, this was all good, clean fun. And uh, in that county at that time, it was pretty much all Republicans. So I think Dole ran very strongly in Marion County at that time. So there didn't seem to be too much uh, backlash from our shenanigans. And, of course, that campaign was famous for having come one year after Roe v. Wade and mm-hmm. with the abortion issue yes. popping up in a fairly dramatic Way. Yeah, it certainly was. As a matter of fact, there's one ad in particular that I know has been somewhat lionized since then, but I do recall seeing it on television as a young man where it was uh, uh, Dr. Bill Roy was his opponent, and there was an advertisement of a girl, in a, I think it was a girl on a swing in a park was one shot, and then a, another one was an empty swing, which was implying that if you know Dr. Roy had his way, there, she wouldn't have been born. So it was really hard-hitting. Uh, politics, and I think that was really the first time that you know anti-abortion had been used uh, widely as sort of a campaign issue in a Senate race. So I think it was quite remarkable as far as political scientists science goes. That was a major turning point, I think. Well, and I guess for an 11-year-old, it was also a certain amount of sex education, right? Well, that's true. <laughs> I knew very little then. I don't know that, that much more now, but um, <laughs> it was did make an impression on me as a young person. Uh, you know that pol- you know that politics could be a very tough business, and I think a lot of the campaign at that time was also run on the radio, which was uh, and living in the country, we listened to the radio quite a bit. Uh, TV, not so much, but um, I can also recall a lot of hard-hitting radio ads, that even you know at that young tender age, hearing about that campaign. So I know it was very tough, and I think that he won by one tenth of one percent, as I recall. So it was a very very tough campaign, but I recall it rather clearly. Um, so, at what point did you and the senator then actually meet and start? Well, you know, I I had some ambition from then on to you know try to figure out some way that I could um, you know meet Senator Dole or work for him in some capacity. But um, 
you know, my family then, we were very poor and not particularly political, and I, so I had really had no connections to uh, Senator Dole or the political scene at all at that time. So, but I had ambitions to do so, so I later went to the University of Kansas and I was a political science major, and in my senior year there at KU, I had the opportunity to take an internship in Senator Dole's office in Topeka, Kansas, for his one of his Senate field offices. So uh, one of my friends had, had, had been an intern there, and he helped me become his successor, and so I was able to get an internship there in the spring of 1985, January, I think, till May, which was my final semester in college. So I, in January of that year, uh, I, Kansas Day occurred in Topeka, which is the annual uh, Republican Party convention. And there was one of the traditions at Kansas Day is that the Senator Dole at least had had for many years was to have a receiving line where he stood and people could walk through and shake his hand. And so that's, as a, so I was in his office there and I got in line and I shook his hand. Matter of fact, I called very clearly. I told him that I was an intern for him and his. Kansas office, and he responded, "Well, you should come to Washington and work for me," which I took very seriously. I don't know if he, I don't know if he did when he said it, but I took him literally. So that's what I did <laughs> later that year. Um, just before we make that move to Washington, um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about uh, his field office. What was that like? Uh, you know, that was a very interesting place to work because you're sort of on the front lines for, um, you know, dealing with the constituents and whatever they're day-to-day problems may be. You know, my job as an intern was to answer the phones, which means you really can't uh, hide from the demands of, uh, you know, the constituents and the voters, and and you're expected to be, sort of, uh, provide customer service, if you will, to them. So, you know, that's probably one of the best ways to learn about how public service really works, because you're sort of there expected to give responses to people that uh, or maybe angry or maybe upset or may not be, but, you know, they're expecting you to help them out in some way. So it was really a great experience to learn about how uh, constituent service is supposed to work. You know, years later, I became a state director, so I was at the other, sort of the under, other end of the spectrum on the, you know, the state offices. So I found later that that experience of having done that made me much more, you know, in tune to what uh, sort of was expected from an elected official from the their constituents. So it's very useful. How did liaison between the field office and the Washington office work? Um, you know, one of the main roles, I think, well, there's two main roles, I think, of the field offices. One was to register citizens' positions on particular issues that were going on at the time. So, for example, people would call in and say, I'm against this tax increase or for that bill. And you were expected to take a tally of the votes or the people that were calling in to express their opinions on particular issues. So that was one part. And then the second was sort of help people with problems they were having with the government, primarily with getting their Social Security check or their farm, their subsidy check or what have you, try to chase down checks for people. So I always thought the first function was by far the most more interesting. And it was also my understanding that Senator Dole himself always kept you know himself abreast of what the tallies were that he was getting on calls from his field offices for particular issues. So I always felt like that that was, you know, seemingly mundane but fairly important job because it was one of the ways that the senator became informed of what his uh, constituents were thinking about his positions on particular issues. So I thought that also made me feel rather important because I thought, I don't know if it's true or not, but I thought that he was, you know, paying attention to what I was doing in a way. (laughs) 
even though I was the lowest guy in the totem pole. And your inf information was moving up through the state office, or did it I, go directly to Washington? I think, no, we reported directly to the AA uh, in Washington, I think it was Mike Pettit at the time, and presumably he was paying attention to what, to what the numbers were, and then he was passing that along to the senator himself. And you were in that office for how long, did you say? Uh, five, six months, I think. And did Dole drop by ever or uh, often? Or? Yeah, he came to the office a couple of times. I don't think he spent a great deal of time in the offices because that wasn't really uh, that beneficial. He would come there if there was time in his schedule, uh, you know, to make phone calls or what have you. I think that might have happened a couple of times. So subsequent to that January Kansas day when I saw him, I think I probably saw him on a couple of other occasions as well during that period. That was a very, relatively brief period. So <clears throat> did you call him up and say, I'm coming to Washington? And well, <laughs> how did that work? <laughs> well, I didn't know exactly that way. So I um, had, my brother had been longtime friends with another person who had had a long association with uh, Senator Dole, a guy named Bill Taggart. So my brother had actually dated one of the Taggart twins, one of his daughters at KU uh, during that previous, during that same era when I was there. So um, Judy K. Brown, who was the director of the Topeka office, put me in touch with Bill Taggart. And I asked Mr. And she arranged for me to stay in the Taggart home when I came to Washington, which was something that a long line of adult uh, people coming from Kansas to Washington had done. So I was another one of the Taggart stepchildren. So I bought a one-way ticket in June, I guess, to Washington, and Taggart picked me up at the airport, and I went and stayed at his home with the intent of getting a job in the Senator's Senate office that was on the Hill was my goal, which I never achieved, but I was did make it to Washington. So um, I actually didn't start working for Senator Dole again until the following January of 1986, but I was in Washington for that intervening period, working for another senator on the Hill in the mailroom, which is the lowest form of political life on the Hill, <laughs> and it was a very difficult job. <laughs> so then what were the terms, and how did you come on board with the Dole team? Well, I had... Um, Another friend of Tag, it became clear there really wasn't a Senate job that I was either going to get or was qualified for. So at the same time, Dole for Senate 86, which was his political committee, had an office in Alexandria, Virginia. And another friend of Taggart, a guy named Kurt Klinkenbeard, who had been a longtime advisor to Senator Dole and been a fundraiser, was uh, running that, off, that operation, uh, Dole for Senate 1986. And so it turned out that Clinkenbeard needed an assistant, somebody to help him with the fundraising. And so Taggart somehow talked uh, Clinkenbeard into hiring me in January of 1986. So uh, he, I was back home for, over the, for the holidays, and he called me and offered me a job to start working for him in 86, uh, I think it was. And that was here in Washington? Yes, in Alexandria, Virginia, in Old Town. Mm -hmm. So uh, I came back, and I was very excited that, you know, I finally got my big break. And so I went to, started working for uh, Clink in January of that year. Now, that was short-term, because that was all related to the 86 re-election. It was. <laughs> the job was relatively short-term, I thought. Uh, it turned out to be, to last for the next 15 years, but it was supposed to be just a short uh, period of time at the, uh, then. Um, and the job changed considerably, too, once... Um, once it started, it turned. So I worked for just a few months helping uh, Clink do his fundraising for the reelection campaign. 
But it turned out in March of that year, for some reason, there was a need. Senator Dole needed somebody who could uh, travel with him when he did his campaigning on the weekends, which uh, he at that time had been the Senate Majority Leader for a year. And so he was in great demand to appear for other senators and candidates at all levels, uh, which he could only do over the weekends because he was running the Senate in the meantime. So he needed somebody that was available to travel with him on roughly Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Mondays, mostly weekends. So I was uh, young and unattached and was from Kansas, so I was seemingly qualified enough to go on a trial trip to uh, Michigan, which I did with he and Clink uh, one weekend. As I recall, we went to the Thumb area of Michigan for a fun, uh, county fundraiser. So that was sort of my first uh, trip with Senator Dole was in March of that year. And in anticipation of that trip, you were probably fairly nervous. I was nervous. Uh, had never... That was the second time I think I'd been on an airplane. The first time was to go to Washington to take the, take, you know, to move here. And so this was the second time, and this was not any airplane. It was a private jet, which, uh, you know, I'd never been uh, close to or near to at any time. So that was, that made me nervous. Thirdly, I had no clothes because, you know, I was a pauper and had come to Washington without any means of support and still didn't have any for that matter. So... Uh, I was able to scrape together enough money to buy a suit so that I could, and a tie, so that I would be presentable for this trip to Michigan. So once I got all that together, and a pair of shoes, so once I had myself pulled together and found out where the airport was um, and showed up on time, uh, I was able to go on that trip. And so, tell me how that trip went. Uh, you know, it, it was very interesting because it went very well. You know, when you're in one of those small airplanes and there was just three people, you sort of can't hide your personality and you pretty much know within a short you know it's like being locked in a closet with someone you know within a relatively short period of time whether you're gonna have to have a rapport with them or if you're gonna not and so uh, it was very interesting that you know even our age difference was significant and our station in life was radically uh, there was a big gulf that we were able to have uh, a very good relationship seemingly from the beginning uh, from that first plane trip and we hit it off quite well, and Clink told me a few tricks on what he liked and didn't like when he was campaigning, and I watched closely and learned a few things, and I think the first trip uh, went very well. You know, it was very interesting for me to be somewhere other than Kansas and with my, you know, boyhood hero, so uh, I think it went, it went fairly well. I was asked to go back, the, you know, the next week and subsequent weeks, and months and years, so I think it went pretty well the first time. So you just grew into that job right from that uh, Michigan trip onward? From that point onward, right. And so he needed somebody that could have the ability to go help with logistics and political uh, follow-up. And you're sort of. And even at that time, I was a one-man band, so I had to deal with the media. So I became sort of a jack-of-all-trades, and we had to deal with whatever, you know, anything that ha would occur that would come at that Point. I always thought it was sort of an interesting dynamic, too, because when he was in Washington, he had the Senate majority staff, and he had his personal staff, and he had you know, score, basically scores of staff people around. Yet, on Fridays, when it was time to leave town for the next three or four days, it was just me. So it was quite a, you know, quite a uh, interesting scenario where he went from this huge infrastructure, you know, when he was in Washington, to just one you know, 22-year-old guy from Peabody when he <laughs> left. 
but not that all those people weren't there, but they weren't in the room like they had been in Washington. So it became sort of a very interesting uh, dynamic, I thought, that it was a lot of responsibility. I mean, looking back, it, it seems like an incredible amount of responsibility for a young, you know, sort of untested person. But again, we had a very good close rapport that, um, such that, uh, you know, that wasn't really uncomfortable for either of us from the beginning and still isn't to this day. Uh, do you recall some of the advice that Clint gave you uh, before? Well, that? some of it was, yes, it was always to, you know, be on time and know the schedule very well, know where you were going and how long it was going to take to be there, whether it was to be on a jet flight or on a drive time or the time you're supposed to be in an event. There was always a well-printed out schedule, and he recommended that I try to, mem- you know, essentially memorize it before I would go on any trip because... As he explained, and it was factually true, that Senator Dole certainly had, and he knew every detail what was expected for the trip from exactly the flight, you know, how long a flight would be and how long a drive would be and what are the circumstances of the speech and that he knew all that. And so when I was asked a question, I was certainly expected to know that as well as a staff guy. So I tried to make it my business to try to memorize and learn as much as I could about the details of the logistical details of the trip uh, as, as much as I could before we left on one. And so that was that was a very important aspect of that. You know, a lot of the uh, job, too, in addition to that, was sort of being alert to whatever the political circumstances were of the parent were, who the candidate was, what he was running for, and sort of as much political intelligence as you could try to... Uh, try to amass before you would leave on a trip so you could appear as if you were, you know, at least knowledgeable and some way about what, what it is you were doing that weekend. And and another important aspect was that, you know, considering that Senator Dole's disability, there were some things that he could and could not do as a result of that, and so a large part of the job was sort of compensating for that, certain things you would need to do to compensate for that, uh, uh, some of which were significant, some were insignificant, but that weren't to do it in such a way that it wasn't really readily apparent to outsiders, so it didn't look like that he needed somebody to help him do things, that I was just another guy that was there or maybe a security guy or whatever, you know, some other role than than that, Where yet that was one of the primary roles. So a lot of the tips he gave me were how to help him with certain things that he couldn't do physically as well. Did the senator himself uh, say to you, young man, I, I want you for this, this, and this, or did no. you just sort of grow into the job with Clink's advice? Yeah, with Clink's advice and others that had been around him for a lot of years. Um, no, he never really made it clear what he did and didn't want me to do, but I tried to be as observant as I possibly could be. Um, although probably, you know, that was a long time ago, but in the early years, in the early years of doing that, he might have asked me to do some things like open a Coke bottle, which you know, or wouldn't necessarily have occurred to me that he couldn't do. Um, and, but I think the majority of it was sort of just observing and growing and into the job and paying attention to what he couldn't, couldn't do and then trying to help compensate for the things that he would let me help him with, which wasn't everything. Some things he didn't want help with that you could clearly were difficult and other things uh, he wouldn't let me. And it really just depended on what the situation was and who, who was around and if it was in public or private. Would you mind talking a little bit about what he could or couldn't do? Because uh, I think no. a lot of people don't understand the extent of his disabilities yes. and and the challenges that he met on a daily basis. Yes. Um, yeah, and I think I could 
if I can describe maybe what sort of the extent of his disability. So, you know, during the wartime, the injuries he sustained were primarily to the right side of his body. So um, the most obvious uh, disability was his uh, very limited use of his right arm. He also had very little hearing in his right ear as a result from those same injuries, and that was probably less known. So um, I guess, you know, what I used to do was try to think about, uh, give it, I'd walk into a room in any given scenario and try to think about what it is that I could or couldn't do if I only had one arm. So probably one of the primary things that was obvi- became obvious to me is that he basically can't carry anything. So because if he were to carry anything, he would have to do it with his left arm, and then he wouldn't be able to shake hands which was his main job when we were on the campaign trail. Not main job, you know, that was, that's a function that people expect you to do whenever they see you is shake your hand on the political, in the political life. And so I re- realized very early that, you know, basically couldn't hold anything. So if there was a briefing book or if there was a drink or if somebody handed him something or, you know, he had his coat that he had taken off that he couldn't hold. That, so a lot, that was really one of the main functions was to keep that, left hand free and so try to be a try to be pay attention to everything that he was or any scenario in a given circumstance that would require that I would sort of take over and just naturally take it take it away from him so uh, so that would extend to a variety of those things you know a few if I just listed um, I would also you know try to take care to when I was speaking to him to try to speak into his left ear so you know make it easier for him to hear me and understand what I was trying to say to him and a number of other functions, probably the primary the ones are autographs. People always wanted to autograph from him, you know, and I've, you know, along with them, I have, you know, tens of thousands of autographs, I'm sure. But if you think about trying to sign an autograph with one hand, it's virtually impossible because you don't, you, typically you hold whatever the piece of paper is with one hand and sign it with the other, which was not possible in his case. So I always carried a little black notebook around, which was, I did from that first trip on till today, if I'm ever with him, which is not, which is rarely, but if I am, I always, uh, and if that's part of what I'm supposed to be doing, to, so that I would hold it like this, and whatever that he was signing was go down, and I would hold that down, and then he would sign it. So I would always stay sort of on his right side, and that was one of the main functions was the signing of the autograph, of which there was just hundreds of thousands, you know, over the years that had to be done. And that also served a helpful function, too, because if I was standing to his right, it would I was able to prevent people from grabbing his right arm or his right hand, which I think caused him discomfort. So if you're sort of in the way, they can't do that. So I would always try to stand on that side and, and f- always find a reason to stand on that side and keep people from doing that. Um, probably one of the other major functions, if you think about it, is eating food. So eating food, if you think about it with one hand, is, is fairly difficult, particularly if it's a piece of meat. So that's another thing that I always paid attention to and always was preemptive about going to a maitre d' or go to the kitchen or go to whoever was serving the dinner if it was a private home and ask them to cut up his meat in little pieces before they brought it out to the table so it wouldn't even apparent that that was you know, required for him to do. So those are probably a couple of examples of the main things in that piece of the job that I always tried to pay attention to. And what about dressing or taking uh, the coat off and things no, like that? No, you know, that was always something that he was able to do on his own entirely. So I never really had to help him 
uh, get dressed or undressed at all. Now, I think it was exceedingly difficult for him, and I think it took a long time for him to do it. Uh, but I think that early on in life, or early on in his recovery from his uh, wounds, I think that's uh, my presumption always was that that's something he wanted to do himself, and he wanted to be able to do it himself, and didn't need help doing it. So uh, that's and the way that he would arrange his clothing too made it made him able to do it uh, by himself. So that's something I never really had to help with, uh, and never did. So my, I think it took him over an hour. You know, to get dressed where it would take you nine, ten minutes. Uh, but he did it himself and didn't want help, and I never did. Um, you've described your job Friday through Monday. Uh, the rest of the week, you were doing what? Well, it depends on what area you're talking about, because I traveled from that first trip in 1986. I went on to travel with them up all the way through the end of his 96 uh, presidential campaign, more or less continuously, though there were some periods there that I didn't do it. So it really depended on the scale of the campaign operation that was underway at the time. For example, in 86, it was relatively, you know, it was just he and I going out to campaign for for a people, for the most part. Sometimes there'd be somebody else with us. On, uh, on the other hand, in the heat of the general election in 1996, we had two or three 737s and 25-car motorcades and, you know, hundreds of support staff that was required to keep a general election candidate going. So the, what I did in the time in between those trips was really a function of what the campaign scenario we are in. So uh, for the most part, in between the trips, I would help plan the next one. And I, would always, I was always uh, involved in the fundraising, too, because that was one of the vital parts of whatever enterprise we were undertaking, be it Dole 86 and then Dole for President 88, which you know followed fairly closely on the hills of the 86 campaign. So what you would mentioned before, that it was going to be a short-term job, it sort of folded right in, turned into a presidential primary campaign. So a lot of the work I did in between the trips then was helping uh, devise the next trip and and helped with the fundraising uh, operation in between those two trips. So uh, for that period, I'd say 86, 87, 88, was primarily just driven by the logistical uh, plans for the campaign trips that he was doing. And your office was where? Uh, in Alexandria. Uh, and then in 88, that was in 86 and 87. And then 88, uh, Dole for President 88 had an office in downtown Washington here on L Street. It was a you know much larger uh, operation for the primary campaign that was really in eighty seven and eighty seven and eighty eight. So during that period, you never had an office on the hill. I never have an office on the hill. As a matter of fact, for all these year, for the total of fifteen years that I worked for him, I never worked on the hill. I was always in the campaign operations, and or as a consultant. Uh, for one, I did work on the Senate staff for a period of about three years. So that was in Kansas. I was a state director. So, what, what years was that? Um, so the 88 campaign ended when George Bush won the primaries. And um, that, and I stayed on and worked for Campaign America, which was his political action committee, f- during the f- balance of the 88 campaign and into 89. And then the uh, summer of 89, I moved back to Kansas, and I took over as state director of his field offices, which I did until 1992. So um, 
and then in 92, I became the manager of Dole for Senate 92, which was his final Senate race. And that lasted until, well, until his reelection in 92. And then I went back and did Campaign America again, and through the 94 cycle, and then it became clear he was going to run again. So I came back to Washington for the 95, 96 campaign. So I sort of went back and forth, uh, depending on the campaigns that were going on. But when you were out there, that was always a state director for that That period. was the state director. Although, so that, was, that was for a fairly long period of time, three years. And I, I always had sort of a political eye also, because that was, I always presumed that job, my job going there in 89 was sort of to get him ready and become, to sort of heighten the political activity that he was engaged in the state in preparation for his 92 re-election. So in my view, that was sort of a lead-in to working on the 92 campaign, which is not atypical. And also on the Senate staff, uh, the way the Senate rules were at the time, and I believe they still are, is that you can have one person who can handle political funds on your Senate staff. And so I had that designation. So I spent a lot of that time also involved in fundraising uh, while I was the state director. Did you have people that you worked with on a regular basis in his either the leader's office or his personal office? Or? Well, yes, I did. Because I had been here for the 88 presidential campaign, I'd be gotten to know his Senate staff quite well. So Sheila Burke is somebody that I had worked with, and Joanne Coe very closely during that 88 cycle who were on his Senate staff, and Joyce McClooney was there, and Walt Riker was there. So I had become quite familiar with his Senate staff because of my role as his you know, personal aide during the 88 campaign. So um, when I went back to Kansas, I, main, I tried to maintain those relationships as much as I could, and I still, I think even at that time, I reported into uh, Mike Pettit, who was in the Washington office, I think was the AA. And then there was another guy, Jim Hooley, who was his AA for a short period of time uh, in the early 90s. So, uh, yeah, because I had had the experience back in Washington, I felt like I had good access to the Washington staff uh, when I was in Kansas. Well, I imagine there would be a fair amount of scheduling and discussion of itineraries and all that kind of stuff. So who were you mainly making Uh, those discussions with? Well, the the way that they had it set up then was that when he was in Kansas, well, there was really two different groups. So when he was in Kansas, Judy K. Brown, who I'd worked for when I was an intern, uh, wrote his Kansas schedules for when he was in Kansas. So I would work with, with her on those. But at the same time, I also traveled with him on much of his national campaigning. Still on the weekends, even though I was in Kansas, I would go back to Washington and travel with him for uh, various periods during that time also on my free time. So um, I dealt with, I think Joanne was doing a lot of the scheduling sort of during that interim period uh, after he had run the first time before he ran the second time for president. So who became his right-hand person uh, when you were unavailable? Uh, you know, there was another guy named uh, Dean who worked for him on the Hill who did some traveling with him, I think, when I wasn't available. I think there was sort of two or three different people who kind of filled in when I was out in Kansas during that period. A lot of it I, I did. If it was an extended trip, I would come back and I would meet him and go on long, you know, if there was any kind of a major trip or he wanted me to go. Uh, but I think there was sort of a revolving cast of other people who went during that period. Did anyone ever express uh, resentment that you had this incredible access uh, to him? And uh... Uh, you know, not to, not to me. Uh, I never, you know, it might have been. It was sort of a job that everybody understood had to be done, and 
Um, I think that the staff also knew that the more experience you had at it, the probably the better you were and that easier it would be on everyone. So I never really felt any kind of um, uh, resentment or negativity with the staff for the role I had just because I'd been, you know, after I did it for a year or two, um, it became, I became sort of a standard part of the operation. And so I don't think, I can't really recall if there was any kind of resentment of that type. And I always tried to be sort of a fair broker too, because I was, you know, it was the only person who was really an eyewitness to what was going on, you know, for half the week of, of his life. Uh, I always tried to be good about reporting back to whoever might be interested about the various parts that would apply to him about what had occurred. So I think I, you know, I like to think that I had a good working relationship with all the different se- people who were, pro- you know, more senior to me uh, about things that they needed to know about what might have occurred during that, you know, those days when we were out of Washington. So I don't really recall any kind of uh, resentment or negativity, although might have been, I might have forgotten it, but I don't remember. <laughs> um, not. I guess... I guess my next question is is pretty much just you know what was it like to be with him on these during trips? that period? Uh, you know, a lot of it was very. Uh, you know, it really depends on what, you know, what different sort of segment of that time because it was over a significant period of time, and you know it's interesting in the looking back is that I joined his staff as an intern on the same month that he was uh, elected Senate Majority Leader. So by the time I showed up, he had, you know, already had a very long career in Congress, and I sort of showed up for the, you know, what became the apex of his, you know, political career, if you will, running, although he'd run for president in 80, that was short-lived. Of course, he had been on the vice presidential ticket before that. But this was really the first, you know, this was really the, 85 was sort of the beginning of his prominence as a national political figure that went on for, you know, the next decade, over a decade to follow that. So... I always thought I couldn't believe that it, you know, that what I had dreamed that I hoped I would do when I was 11 had actually come true. That was the main thing, you know, having had no money or connections to anybody that it actually occurred. So that was my, probably the most dominant thought I had. Um, The other was that, um, I guess the, um, the other part I really enjoyed was being able to go to all different parts of the country and sort of meeting people in every you know, part of the country. So like I had mentioned, I'd really never been outside of Kansas much when I came here to work for him in 85. I started traveling for him in January of 86, and by the summer of 88, I'd been to 50 states with him. So that was, you know, a period of like two years, many of them several times. So I think that was probably the one of the most exciting parts about it was being able to see the country in its totality. So, as a matter of fact, after that, I went back, and this was in 88, even before we did it all again in 96, and even to a more extreme degree with the, as far as the traveling goes, but and looked at a map and discovered that not only had I been to every state, but I'd been to every major city and every major town and every, I think, city above 50,000 population in the United States, and many of them underneath that. So just the complexity of being able to travel to all these places in itself was sort of mind-boggling that I'd had the opportunity to do that after, you know, being sort of a local guy for, you know, Marion County. To be able to, to be able to expose to that degree was uh, was incredible. 
And also, you know, at also various times during that period, I got to travel with him overseas. So I think I went to 40 different countries overseas with him, too, during that time. So I was able to, you know, the exposure I got to the globe, global, you know, politics and and to look even local, you know, in the Iowa caucus, you know, was kind of a great breadth of, of American politics. You know, I don't know. I'm sure there's others that have had an experience like mine, although I don't know if there's any very many who had done it with one person. I don't think I don't think it's unusual for political, you know, operatives, if you will, to work at various levels in the political system. But I don't know if anybody had ever had the opportunity to go from being an intern, you know, and having been nowhere to having been to you know 50 states and 30 countries and involved in in races from as local as, you know, city council to the you know, being uh, you know, off stage with the presidential nominee at the convention. So sort of the breadth of the experience and having been done it with just one person, I think, was probably the most remarkable part about the whole thing. So, How did you balance uh, being a fundraiser with being this traveling companion? Well, you know, much of what we did was fundraising, and that's always been the, you know, the driving force in politics is you can't pay for anything unless you raise the money. So... Um, I think a lot of it was probably the influence of how I started working for Clink and Beard and, you know, raising the money for this 96, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 86 center race. So I didn't think it was necessarily a conflict. I mean, that was really just one part of it being involved with the uh, political fundraising part. But I always, my experience in the campaigns had been not to denigrate what anybody else does in campaigns, volunteers of any other type or uh, you know, people that do the scheduling or logistics or policy, but it had always been my experience in witnessing uh, campaigns at all levels that was primarily the people that raised the money that got the most respect and were, you know, were seem, seemed to me to be the most important people that were involved. I mean, that's sort of a cynical view of the process, I know, but that was that's sort of the impression I had got being involved in it. And so I always thought that that was sort of, that was a very important part of the at least of the campaign process, and thought I thought that it was vital to sort of be associated with that, and I thought that would serve me well in my uh, career, and it has. I mean, I'm still I'm still involved in fundraising now for presidential campaigns only as a volunteer, but so that's always had been sort of the the um, across all this time that had had been uh, the one thing that they all the political activity had in common is that it had to be paid for, so. I didn't really see it as a conflict. I guess what I thought is that uh, when you flew into a town um, and were accompanying the senator, you would also, he would be talking to and you would be interacting with people that you've been on the phone with earlier in the week or last month yes. or, or whatever. that's true. And, and wouldn't that divert you from this sort of careful attention you had to pay to him? I mean, you were, you were both a salesman and yeah. a... A, a part of uh, not really because taking care of him, I always knew it was my main job, and that's always what I was mostly focused on. And everything else was really sort of secondary to that. Uh, particularly at, when those times when I was the only one there. Now, as time went by, you know, the traveling party grew and shrunk. You know, at various times depending on the what campaign cycle we were in. But um, no, that never was that much of a conflict. Um, and I always tried to keep that as my primary focus, and it served me well. You know, during all those years was to make was to really keep him as my you know the primary thing that I was that I had to keep uh, focused on it wasn't that hard to do over time 
you know, the thing about Senator Dole was that he was, you know, the thing that was most remarkable about him that I always tried to copy in how I behaved when I was with him was that he really never differentiated between people that, a guy that might have been a billionaire and the guy that was the chef in the kitchen. And he always sort of viewed everybody as, as equal, in, as it were, as far as he was concerned. So I never saw him treat anybody with more or less respect than the next guy, regardless of their station in life or what they were, you know, their role was relative to what we were trying to get done. So if I, I always found that if I tried to copy, you know, if I tried to mimic his behavior in that way, that I was, could serve both he and I well. And uh, I think it did, or, you know, that's really what I tried to do. So briefly, how would, you, how would you describe your modus operandi as a fundraiser for Senator Dole? Uh, well, I really, I don't know. That fundraiser is kind of a general term. That's sort of what, that's just really what the organizations that I was working for was primarily supposed to be doing. So when we were traveling, I didn't solicit money from people, for example. Uh, I would help the central operation arrange fundraising events and make suggestions about how they stage them. But when I was with him, I never asked anybody for money. That wasn't really the role. No, I was really thinking when you were on those oh, off days when you weren't trying. Yeah, really just helping the people plan them and providing a lot of the logistical support about how they should be, how they really should run, you know, from what the format might be and who this, what the order of the speakers might be and what is and isn't appropriate as far as access the media might have to them or not have to them. So a lot of my role during that period in between was really advising as to the logistics of the events themselves rather than the soliciting of the funds, which in most part was really done by local, either consultants or volunteers, depending on what city we were going to. So as far as actively soliciting funds and asking people for money, I really didn't do that. Although I did collect the money, that was one of my primary jobs. And when we were at events, I would oftentimes be the recipients of the funds, and so I always carried around, you know, envelopes full of checks with me, from the, and I would bring them back, and I would count them and make sure that they were <laughs> what they were supposed to be, and give them back to the Washington office. Um, I I read somewhere that um, you became a bit of a problem for the visual media because oh yes you. Always, you're sort of the zillig, mm -hmm. <laughs> the guy in the picture all the time. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, that was yeah. <laughs> I had somewhat of a reputation with the media for doing that. Um, you know, that was uh, that was sort of a function of my role. Another, I think I described earlier that a lot of my job was to sort of protect his right side. And so in a lot of situations, particularly before we had, you know, a 96 campaign for a long period, we had Secret Service coverage. So it was a lot, uh, during that period, it was a lot easier to control sort of the crush of the press and of, you know, people around them because the Secret Service was really doing that. Uh, but for the many, many years leading up to that time when we didn't have security at all, I sort of had to do that too. And a lot of, you know, the press, when they go into their feeding frenzy, tend to get fairly aggressive, and they'll basically close in on you. And, you know, and, at certain, and particularly if there's a crisis going on, they'll basically surround you and almost crush you. 
So that was sort of one of my roles I got was standing next to him, basically fighting them off to keep them from, you know, smashing up against him. So a lot of, I think a lot of them, a lot of the press maybe didn't understand that that was what I, why I was standing there, but I was always standing there and I wasn't ever going to move. So um, one of the nicknames I picked up, I think it was during the 88 campaign, was a Damien because I was always sort of the evil guy that was standing in front of their camera <laughs> when they didn't want me to. So um, as a matter of fact, and I also came up with a uh, sort of a slogan I used on cameraman who would complain about me being in their way, and I would say to them, "If well, if I'm in your shot, then you're out of position. <laughs> Rather than they always assumed it was me that was out of position, but I always explained to them it was them. So that was sort of the... Um, it became sort of a running joke, even with my family. My grandmother, and who was alive during the 88 campaign, used to watch a lot of television. And, you know, I was always on there because any time he was on, it wasn't in like a staged speech. Well, there I would be standing next to him. So kind of the joke within the family would be, you know, well, who, who's that guy that's always with Mike on the television? <laughs> so <laughs> so it, was, it kind of came a, a bit of a joke. But, you know, it really was... Uh, sort of part. I, re, I it was part of my job that I had to do, and there really wasn't there wasn't really an option for me not to stand there and be in the shot or be next to him because it was something that had to be done. So right. I just happened to be the guy doing it. I think, and for over such a long period of time. In other words, if there would have been a cast of ten different people standing there, it probably wouldn't have been as noticeable. But for all, for years, it was just me. So you were sort of the offensive tackle uh, in terms of physical uh, things. Right. What about fending off, uh, protecting the, the senator from questions from the press? Uh, you know, I really didn't play that role too, too much. When the press, you know, what I always found was more effective was to found some surrogate to do it for me. So in almost every scenario, we would be campaigning for uh, somebody else. And that somebody else, you know, a Senate candidate or congressional candidate or somebody else always had a press person around. And that press person was really the one who had the relationship with the local media, depending on where we were. And so I would always like to dragoon that person to be the bad guy. And because, I, again, it's not something Senator Dole ever said to me, but I, don't, but I never thought it was my role to cut off the local media and to sort of tell them what to do because I was just another guy that was passing through town, some guy from Washington, right? So I sort of worked out a system over the years to, to, talk, to talk the local person into sort of doing that job for me and saying, oh, sorry, no more questions, or this will be the last question. And, and, I, and I think that worked a lot better for the senator and for me because I wasn't some bad guy that was sort of uh, shutting them down. It was always the local guy that helped do that. So, um, and I, that's some... That technique is something I picked up and basically used in almost every scenario so that I wouldn't have, I would try to like, I always was the bad guy enough already because I was sort of the guy that had to tell people no when they wanted him to do something else that wasn't possible to do based on our schedule or somebody, you know, a meeting that somebody wanted him to take that we didn't have time to do or something he didn't want to do and I would have to tell people no. So I always tried to like minimize the amount of no's I had to give out in the course of the day by getting other people to say no for me. So <laughs> that was sort of something I learned how to do over the years, you know, to get uh, to try to maintain my my own uh, paycheck. <laughs> so that was getting the press, you know, somebody to say no to the press or last question was just one of those, you know, various roles that I tried to drag other people into doing for me. Just generally and briefly, how would you describe uh, 
Senator Dole's rea uh, relationship with the press? Um, you know, it's good and bad depending on who they were. I always thought he did much better with the local press who typically asked a lot easier questions, weren't necessarily tuned into the hardball political fight of the day that was going on in Washington and wouldn't necessarily attack him on some vote he had done that week, you know, even out in the States. Again, the sort of the press pack morphed over time from, you know, one guy in a Oskaloosa, Iowa, to, you know, 200 guys at a press conference in New Hampshire, you know, shouting questions. So it was kind of a... There was, again, there was a very wide range of scenarios that came in. I always thought he viewed them, um, you know, as a necessary part of his job that he had to speak to him. I always thought he very much enjoyed doing interviews. And, you know, rare was the situation where he would not do one. And I think he understood that it was a significant part of the, you know, job that he had to do. You know, one of the, I think the primary value, if not the major value or the primary value he had to candidates when we would come in and campaign for him was his ability to attract media. So if he came to you know town and candidate X was standing next to him, they could get all the press in town would show up for a press conference, which otherwise wouldn't happen for this guy. So which would result in, you know, you could, I don't an invaluable amount of free media for this candidate. So that was really one of the major uh, pieces of leverage that he would bring to candidates for the Senate or Congress uh, that they couldn't otherwise get was this vast attention to the media, particularly during the time he was the Senate Majority Leader, which was the whole time I was around. So, uh, with the exception of the end of the 96 campaign. So, um, I think that he understood that that was one of his major roles was attracting this media pack and trying to uh, be as accommodating to them as he possibly could be considering the circumstances. So, you know, over time, there were a lot of incidents that weren't that happy that, you know, and, and things, bad things that happened with the media, just like there are with any candidate. But um, I think for the most part, it was a very positive type relationship that he had with them. But again, there's different, you know, they had different levels of access to him depending on uh, what was going on. For example, during the general election in 96, we would have, you know, 50 of them would be in the back of the plane. And, you know, one of the general rules is that if you're available one of them, you have to be available to all of them, which wasn't really possible within the scenario of the plane, although John McCain has tried to do that, you know, try to sort of break that rule. But um, I think the relationship with the media was very good, and I think that you'll find that, you know, the people that covered him regularly during that era, you know, really came to admire the guy because, he, you know, he's obviously an American hero and a great statesman and, a, you know, great legislative leader, and so that was widely recognized, you know, at the time by everybody. So I don't think there was very little hostility that I ever encountered with the media, except for when they tried to get, when they would get like, like I sort of described before, at certain times they would become, you know, physically uh, aggressive and trying to get their shot or their story, and that was really the only times we ever had any problems. But I was usually there to sort of elbow them out of the way. My guess would be that um, he would have been more comfortable, he was more comfortable in sort of controlled situations, either sitting down in the studio or something like yes. that, rather than the kind of rabble thing with... Yeah, know. that's true for the most part, because, um, you know, that's probably true. You know, a lot of the, like the juggling, particularly when he was running for president during those two periods, trying to juggle the two, you know, arguably, well, definitely full-time roles of being a candidate for president and being the majority leader of the Senate were almost impossible to 
to do both at the same time and to try to bifurcate those was also impossible because they were totally intertwined because he was one because he was the other, you know, arguably. So um, I think that's probably right, that in the setting where he was in the studio and it was more controlled, he was probably more uh, better. But on the other hand, you know, we did thousands and thousands of press conferences in hotels and, air, you know, in airport lounges uh, that were, you know, much more unstructured than with that. But I never, you know, I never saw him lose his cool in any of those circumstances. And, you know, rarely became angry dealing with the media. And so I think, you know, the, the interesting part about when you do a lot of your work outside of Washington, which is what I, you know, we did together all those years, is that people in Washington really don't see it because it's all the local media. So re- really the only media they see here is, re- is driven largely by the national press, which is either in the Senate or down one of the studios downtown. So, you know, there was just for years and years and years and thousands and thousands of press conferences were all out in the states with the local media which all for the most part are very uh, are very uh, composed and you know the people behave very well and there was never much of a conflict at all and he performed you know exceedingly well because for the most part they're much less aggressive is what I found so um, let's go through the campaigns here just a bit for some outstanding memories that you have that first one the 86 mm-hmm. which was the Kansas uh, re-election campaign yes. for the Senate mm-hmm. what 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 do you remember about that um, the 86 campaign was not that you know the, not really heavy lifting you know he didn't have to make it was true the 92 campaign as well but he was by you know by far had the most money and was uh, very uh, much the favorite to be reelected, and I think it was a pretty good Republican year uh, in the country. And so, the amount of time we spent in Kansas during that period was uh, probably minimal. Although we did some pretty significant campaigning in you know the major media markets, uh, but the '86 campaign, I started in January of 80, or I guess in March of 86, so it was a fairly short period of time that I was involved in that campaign, but it was uh, pretty light lifting, and I don't recall, you know, the one thing that he did every year, uh, or on campaign years when he was a candidate, and probably the thing I remember the most was the Kansas State Fair, where they staged a debate between the candidates, which uh, they do for the state, for the Senate, and for governor, and they may do for other races, but I sort of remember the State Fair as being this that year and subsequent years, which is something we did every year for the, you know, that entire 12-year period at least that he was in office, but I did this, um, as being sort of a very fun thing for me because I had gone to the state fair as a young boy from the 70s, all the way through the 70s until I started working for him. So to be there under the circumstances where I was with Bob Dole and that was sort of the big home state thing was a great experience for me personally, very exciting. So. He performed very well, very well in the debate that summer, uh, fall, I guess it was, in uh, Hutchinson, the state fair. So that was probably the, one of the more remarkable uh, parts about the 86 campaign. But I was really just getting started then, and we, he had just been elected Senate Majority Leader the previous year, and he was trying to retain his majority. So much, much, you know, the vast majority of our campaigning was done in other states other than Kansas in 86. So there were no long night drives from point A to point B. Not really in that race, no, no, not that I not that I really recall. That was really uh, relatively short. And you know the one thing about 
uh, Senator Dole was he really tried, he was always very cognizant of his schedule and always paid great deal of de attention to the details on his schedule. You know, for a guy that never wore a watch, he knew exactly, he had a great sense of what time it was and what time he was supposed to be so there somewhere and if he was late or not, even though he never, <laughs> as far as I knew, never knew exactly what time it was. But, you know, over the years had developed this highly attuned sense of, you know, the, the logistics of time that it took to execute a campaign day. So I think one of the more remarkable things about 86 and subsequent years is that, you know, we would campaign in three or four states a day. It was not atypical during that period. If you have your own airplane, you can do that. You can do multiple stops, and if you hit the right time zones right, you can hit a lot of media markets, you know, in a, in a given day, and we did a lot of that. So one thing he was most he was very well attuned is that there weren't long drives in any of his campaign days, and it was really uh, unusual to have a drive of any length because we were always careful to structure things such that that, that wasn't possible. And particularly in Kansas, there's airstrips almost everywhere, and almost every county has one of their own. And if you're determined you, not to drive, you can fly almost everywhere, and we did. So there was a great deal of flying involved. <laughs> but the 86 campaign, I really don't, you know, at this moment don't recall any any particularly noteworthy things only because it was sort of it was a rather limited campaign within Kansas that year just on this matter of time um, so many politicians are sort of famous for never showing never being anywhere on time right uh, it bothered him if he weren't on time was oh yes uh-huh it was always very well attuned to that and I think that was my might be one of the major contributions I made over time to the campaign organizations is that I could help advise whoever was writing the schedule exactly how much time something took for him to do or for, you know, to fly somewhere or drive somewhere after I'd been all these states you know, repeatedly for a number of years. I sort of have a pretty good sense of where all the airports were and where all the cities were. So I think I had a pretty good, uh, that's one of the main things I could help them do. And so, no, he was very, extremely well attuned and unlike I mean, jumping forward to the 96 campaign, that was sort of one of the main points of pride that we had with the Clinton campaign. Who, Clinton was always on Clinton time, they called it, and it was all perpetually late, an hour or two hours late for stuff. And we always made it a point not to be. And that was always due to his, Senator Dole's interest and his leadership in that matter, that he, he was very determined that he would stay on time. And for the most part, I think we did very well with doing that. And, you know, something he had said repeatedly over the years that, you know, he didn't think it was fair that people should wait uh, to see him because it was really there. They were going, most people would go, and a lot of people did go through considerable amount of effort to get to an event that he was at, and he always thought it wasn't right to make them wait when, uh, you know, if he was late, it was a sort of a form of dishonesty to them. So that was something he was very, very uh, well attuned to, and we always tried to work on. Right. I want to get some details on a couple of the other campaigns, but sure. we need to change tape. Okay. Um, we, we just finished up with the uh, 86 campaign, and before we go to 88 and 96, uh, let's talk just briefly about the uh, 92 re-election campaign. Yes. Any striking memories from that? Uh, you know, yeah, one of the things that I really recall about the 92 campaign that I found was quite remarkable is that um, 
that Senator Dole made it clear early on that one of his goals in the period leading up to the 92 campaign was to visit every county, which is no easy thing in Kansas, 105 counties. So, and many of them are not easy to get to. So, um, it was, that was a very, I had been his state director, and so a lot of the, you know, the years leading up to 92, we tried to, so the idea was in both in calendar year 91 and 92 to try to visit every county. So, which, you know, was a fairly significant undertaking in that, in a limited period of time, he was still the Senate Majority Leader, of course, at the time, so he had great demands, but he was determined that this is something he wanted to do, breeding up to his re-election. So uh, a lot of my time that then was spent uh, driving around, you know, particularly in western Kansas. So I went out and organized and and organized the logistics and a lot of the turnout for county town hall meetings in all the states and particularly in western Kansas uh, during that period. So that was a lot of driving in western Kansas from county seat to county seat, just preparing for the meetings and finding all the locations and learning, you know, finding the route from one county to the next county and finding hotels. And so it was sort of a macro exercise in what we had done in the 88 presidential campaign. So, But it was in the state of Kansas. So that was probably... Probably the, the most remarkable part about the '92 campaign is that you know, like a freshman senator or somebody who ha, you know was running uphill battle for the campaign, he took it very seriously and was not taking his reelection for granted at all. Although he didn't have a, he did not have a well-known or well-financed opponent at any time during that campaign. He was determined to sort of run like he was behind, and he did, and went to every and we did go to every county and had a town hall meeting in every county, and so that was a really. Uh, very strenuous uh, undertaking that a lot of people I don't think really even knew what was going on, but he was determined to do it, and we were able to do it during that period. So um, what it, it was sort of remarkable to me that this guy who by that time had been in Congress and the Senate for 32 years, I guess, wasn't taking anything for granted even in his home state and was determined to do it properly and, you know, and go and meet with as many voters as he possibly could, even though he didn't have to, but he thought it was the right thing to do and that's what we did so that was a very grueling uh, undertaking but you know it got done with you know the help of a lot of people worked hard but uh, that was sort of the most remarkable part I think about that campaign another thing that I remember that was quite uh, that I thought was quite uh, interesting is that he um, also participated in a number of debates in the state during that uh, re-election campaign with people who you know, in normal circumstances, would have have no business. There was a couple of other candidates, neither of whom got, you know, many votes at all, and were not remarkable particularly, but worse candidates for the Senate. But got to sit at the same, you know, dais as the Senate Majority Leader and debate the issues, which I thought he didn't have to do any of that. You know, he could have said, "Oh, I'm not doing any debates," and it would have made any difference. But he did do it. I think there were half a dozen of them that he did in various markets in Kansas. So again. That was sort of another thing that impressed me that the guy wasn't, you know, he was serious about keeping his job and doing it the right way and that he would go through, you know, having debates with these people who had no chance of winning, but he would do it anyway. So uh, that was remarkable. And, you know, we also had his, he had an overwhelming, you know, um, advantage in his fundraising because he was the Senate Majority Leader. There was no shortage of money. But, again, we bought a lot of television ads 
and built up, you know, a significant uh, camping organization taking nothing for granted, which, again, we didn't really need to do, but, you know, he wanted to do it because I don't know if he knew then that that was his last Senate race or not, but it seemed to me that he was, he was taking great care to do it the right way. And so we had a proper uh, county chairman in every county and organized various coalitions, veterans or uh, you know, women for Dole that was, you know, standard, sort of standard procedure for a statewide race and did a lot of direct mail and did a lot of television ads, you know, none of which really, I don't think needed to do, but did it so that we, you know, he could be assured that it was done properly and it was, he won uh, easily. And this was during the primary period, not during the lead up to the general election. No, the 92 general election. So uh, these, these insignificant opponents were Democrats. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Republicans. Yeah, we're Democrats. That's right. That's right. So there was a Democrat and an independent, I think. I don't think he had a, there might have been a Republican primary, but I don't even remember if there was, if he had an opponent or not in the primary, he might have. But again, that was insignificant as well as these Democrats were. So yeah, he, he appeared with the, he had one woman who was the Democrat nominee um, who had, you know, no business running for the Senate, but she was. And so he treated her very seriously as a candidate. You know, I'm recalling now at this <laughs> that there was a guy who ran for, <laughs> this was kind of a funny thing. He ran, there was a guy that ran against him in the primary for the Senate in 92. So I recall, and if I think hard enough, I'll come up with his name, and maybe I will. But um, for now, I'll call him Bill. And so Bill was running for the Senate in the Republican primary in Kansas. And in 91, we were at the State Fair, where Senator Dills always, always had a booth and had had for many years. And he would go to his booth at the State Fair and stand behind the counter, and people would come by, and they would shake hands, you know, and he'd say, I'm Bob Dole. You know, it's the same thing that had gone on there for decades at the fair with him and others, you know, since the, forever. And so... Um, um, at one point, he was at his booth shaking hands, and Bill Bill walked up and said, Hey, Senator Dole, I'm Bill. I'm running against you in the primary. And he's like, Oh, nice to meet you. And that was the only time we ever saw Bill before since, you know, <laughs> before or after that time. That was the only encounter with his primary opponent, I think. It was very friendly. That was the end of it. <laughs> so uh, I, I thought that was kind of. Kind of strange, but had um, he taken flack <laughs> in '86 uh, for not having been attentive to the folks back home? Well, I wouldn't say that he was inattentive. Uh, it's just that I think his new role as Senate Majority Leader was much more demanding on his time than it previous had been. You know, I don't think. You know, I think some of his. I don't know if he. I don't even recall his opponent in '86. In 92, he had, you know, his opponent tried to make an issue at that, that he had forgotten about Kansas. And that might have been a reason why we did the extraordinarily, you know, detailed work we did in the 92 campaign preparing for that uh, re-election. But, um, you know, I think particularly in 96 that his ascension as the majority leader was a source of great pride for people in Kansas. And I think they also understood that it was good for the state of Kansas. We had a lot of interests that needed protecting, and him being in the majority and the leader of the majority in the Senate was, uh, I think, a great boon to a lot of Kansas interests. So I don't think, if I left the impression that he had been inattentive, I don't think that's true. I just don't think that there was a much of a demand to 
or a need to, I don't know if it was his polling numbers or just his personal app, his attitude, but to do the amount of work that had been required. Now, I must say, he might have done a lot more in 85 or 84 in Kansas, so I wasn't, you know, involved, but um, I just can recall in the fall of 86, it was really, the main thrust of the campaign was really maintaining the Senate majority rather than uh, being that concerned about a free election, so. And when you were with him in 92, uh, at any point did he talk about presidential aspirations for 96? Or? No, you know, for most of us who had been involved in 88, we presume that was over with after he lost the primaries in 88. Uh, I don't know if he ever had the idea that he would run again, but certainly those of us who worked for him certainly didn't. You know, as a matter of fact, I was ready in 99. I was ready to go take a, get a different job uh, somewhere because I assumed his, his political career was over. Cause, I mean, I knew he'd continue to be the majority leader and be in the Senate, but I never... Uh, imagined he would be a candidate f uh, for president again. So, no, I don't think that was ever um, in anybody's mind in '92 in particular. Um, I don't. That thought only. I maybe he was considering it in '96, but no, none of our, you know, the people that were in my orbit at that time thought that he would run again. That really only became clear that that might happen after the '94 elections when the Republicans won back the House and the Senate, which was quite, you know, that was a historical moment. And he became the de facto head of the party as the majority of the leader, again, of the Senate with an opposition president. So um, I don't really think, I certainly didn't think he was going to run again, and I would have known presumably as well as anyone, and I don't think anybody on the staff presumed that was a possibility until sort of he was thrust back into this position as being sort of the de facto uh, party head after the 94 elections. So, but I'll tell you this, that his campaign for president for 96 developed very quickly uh, after those 94 uh, elections. So it became very apparent that it was a possibility very rap very soon after the 94 campaign occurred. There is a, a certain degree of appeal uh, in thinking about his having done this county by county going through the state if that really was in his mind his last re-election mm -hmm. sort of right that has, sort has of a nice sense to it doesn't it yeah it really does and I think that you know the the turnouts that we had in even the most remote counties were very good and but you know probably the, one of the more remarkable things that I learned during that campaign just being around him was his uh, the, his ability to remember people and their extended families. I mean, in some of these more remote counties, he would see Mrs. Smith, Betty Smith, and he'd ask about her father. He said he knew her father, and he asked her about her brother, and he would ask about the cousins, and he had like an encyclopedic knowledge of people's, you know, names and what they were doing in all these counties in western Kansas, which, you know, I found was quite remarkable considering that, you know, but I guess I shouldn't in that he had been running continuously in those counties since 1960, so I guess he had better know who they are, but his ability to recall the names and sort of relations between people was really unbelievable. I couldn't, you know, it's remarkable. Let's shift to 88 now. The 88 campaign, yeah. So the 88 campaign was, um, it was a great experience for me because I guess we sort of knew in 86 that he might be a candidate for an 88. Everybody knew that Ronald Reagan would be finishing up with his second term. 
everybody also knew that Vice President Bush was going to be running to succeed him. So the 88 campaign, in my view, was always an uphill battle and sort of a underdog fight from the beginning because the Bush machine had been well established by that time. And, you know, even though it was sort of an interesting dynamic because even though we, you know, Senator Dole was the majority leader of the Senate and had been a significant figure in his party, I always felt like we were sort of the insurgents and the outsiders because we were not Bush people. So, and there was, you know, back at that time, the Bush and the Doles were very competitive and had been sort of competing dynasties within the Republican Party for some time uh, leading up to then. So, um, you know, I always felt that we, the Doleys, were sort of the uh, outsiders that were always trying to fight the uh, Bush machine. And so it was... It was always sort of a David and Goliath scenario, and that's sort of the way it felt. You know, he had Air Force Two, and we had a Cessna, you know, single seat. And, you know, he had the Secret Service at his disposal, and Dole had me, you know. And it was always sort of a, you know, I felt like we were the, you know, little ant waiting to get crushed by the big gorilla, you know, above the Bush machine. So, you know, even from the beginning, it was sort of a uphill struggle, um, and we always knew that sort of the forces of the of uh, Bush was, you know, always going to overpower us. And I, at least that's how I felt, you know, that it was always going to be an uphill battle and extremely tough struggle from the beginning. And it was. Um, the difference, I think, that the major advantage, I think, that we had was the Iowa caucuses. And the Iowa caucuses, campaigning for the Iowa caucuses, um, you know, in retrospect now, was not dissimilar at all to what we did in 92 in his Senate re-election. So it's really campaigning on the very, the most local level. The people in Iowa and the people in Kansas are very similar in their temperament and their geography and in their views. So it really was not dissimilar to, I think, the type of campaigning that he had done for, you know, for much of his career in Kansas. A lot of that was really was transferable to Iowa because just the demographics were so similar. So um, I think we knew from the beginning that if we were going to get any traction at all in 88, it was going to be through working Iowa as hard as we possibly could and trying to break the uh, Bush grip in uh, Iowa. And that's exactly what we did. So we spent a great deal of time in Iowa. I think we went, not, Iowa has 99 counties. I think we went to every one of those counties and did town hall meetings on the, you know, and just slogging it out, uh, you know, every weekend, going back and going back and going back every weekend. And we went back and forth. We were shuttling back and forth to Iowa, uh, you know, pretty much nonstop basis during that period, 87 and 88, you know, in the early 88, all of 87 and, you know, early part of 88. With occasional trips to New Hampshire, because you always knew that you had to, if you, even if you did win Iowa, you, you know, you had to carry some momentum into New Hampshire if you were going to you know, sort of go beyond that point in South Carolina and the other states. So, but that was, that campaign was really all about Iowa. And we, you know, he built up a great deal of goodwill in Iowa and uh, we campaigned really hard in Iowa. And, you know, that was probably the highlight of the campaign was winning the Iowa caucuses and beating the, beating George Bush in Iowa, which by the way, he had carried, I think the 80 caucuses he actually won when he was running for president in the primaries against Reagan. So that was sort of a great matter of great pride was to try to win the Iowa caucuses. So the ADA campaign, that a lot of the memories really revolve around being in Iowa <laughs> again and again. Any, uh, 
It any was our home. particularly uh, vivid memories of being on well, the road? Well, you know, or? there was a lot of good and bad things about uh, being on the road then. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of it sort of revolves around trying to hit all the counties. You know, I can recall being on a small Cessna airplane with two engines and two pilots and being with the Tom Seinhorst, who the guy who managed the Iowa campaign for Dole, and having a big map of Iowa with, you know, yellow on the counties we had already been to and white the counties we hadn't been to. And it seemed like it was sort of a recurring you know, Groundhog Day, every weekend back we were in that plane looking at the map and there was more yellow and, <laughs> and less white and the time went by it was all yellow. So um, that, um, you know, that the Iowa phase of it was uh, was, a, was a lot of fun because there was always a sense of, uh, sense of momentum and that we're doing very well in Iowa and I think it was always reflected in the polls. Sort of the yang to that was the New Hampshire campaign, which was very tough and Dole had never really gotten much traction in New Hampshire and never really was accepted that much, in my view, by the voters of New Hampshire. And I don't know if it was a cultural difference or, again, the Bush family had, uh, you know, had been from Maine and George Bush had spent a lot of time in New Hampshire uh, campaigning in many years leading up to that point. Uh, but the camp, the New Hampshire campaign was much tougher uh, slog and it was much harder work and I always felt sort of like an alien being as a Midwesterner in New England because the people are much, you know, the Yankees are a lot different than we Midwestern people and it was always, always felt a great cultural sort of a disconnect and I think that was true with, I presume that was true with Senator Joel too, although we spent a whole lot of time there. So, and you know, and afterwards too the, um, there was a faint, you know, that on the election, that whole period around the elections after we won Iowa and went to New Hampshire, the Bush campaign ran some very negative ads, very tough ads. Senator Straddle was a very hard-hitting and negative ad that was run against the senator. And we, um, and the logistics of buying time and so forth were such that we couldn't respond. And so that was sort of a very bitter, sort of a bitter period of, of this whole campaign cycle was that the New Hampshire portion of the 88 campaign were told lost to uh, to Bush in the primary. So that was very tough. You know, and there was a lot of fame, you know, some of his most famous negative comments to the media were made during that time, stop lying about my record to George Bush. And so that was sort of a real, very demoralizing, that sort of period of the campaign in the late, you know, 88 campaign. And in the morning after the results were in in New Hampshire, you met with the senator, and what was he like? Uh, you know, it wasn't uh, particularly pleasant, particularly when, you know, his pollster, you know, part of my job that was always um, not challenging, but it was, uh, you know, it was difficult, was, was that I was the, always the last guy to see him at night and always the first guy to see him in the morning. So I always had a pretty good feeling about how he was feeling because I was always, the, you know, the first guy there to show up at the door and walk, come in. So and talk to him about what was going on that, or mostly about what was going on that day. He's not really a great one for introspection. He was mostly looking forward to, you know, what what was next on the agenda. But, um, you know, it was, it, he'd had, there had been a lot of indications from his pollster that he had been making strong comeback in New Hampshire and there was potential that he could o- overtake Bush there. And um, I think that, he, you know, he was pretty mad, pretty angry about the outcome in New Hampshire, mostly because of this negative ad that was, you know, very unfair and 
he felt like had really destroyed his had been per, a personal attack, which um, you know is diff, in the give and take of politics. There's a lot of ways to run television advertisements, and I think he thought that one was particularly heinous and over the top and personal, and he took it personally. So uh, he was not a happy guy in the in that morning after the New Hampshire primary. Any comments about his um, campaign team for that election? Uh, you know, that, that was a tough time because we sort of went through, as I recall, in particular our media campaign went through a lot of different people. So, and there was also some significant changes in the political, the people who were running the campaign. I think Bill Brock was the campaign chairman or, you know, for a lot of the time. And I think there was a lot of, Within the campaign, there was a lot of dissension between sort of the old, dull people and the new, dull people who had been, you know, sort of hired guns, if you will, who had been brought on that really didn't know him and didn't really know. Even then, I considered myself one of the old, dull people, even though I'd only been around a couple of years. But, um, you know, I had sort of been brought in through the old guard. And um, I think there was a pretty significant disconnect between the people who came in later and the people that had always been around for him and a lot of resentment about some of the strategies that were uh, forwarded by sort of the new, uh, you know, hired gun people that weren't necess- that didn't really know him that well but thought they knew how to win campaigns. And that did- And we, we, the dull, hardcore people, always thought that it was better to sort of run a campaign around him and his beliefs rather than what was, you know, generally accepted to be effective at the time. So there was a lot of... There was, I would, not being truthful, though I didn't say there was a lot of dissension during that period, both in, inside and outside of the campaign headquarters. I always had sort of an advantage, though, because I had spent most of my time on the road and wasn't, you know, I was somewhat disconnected from a lot of the discourse that, and discord that occurred, you know, inside the campaign headquarters, fighting between the factions and so forth, because I was always working, and I was always out on the campaign trail, and we had immediate, you know, tasks that we had to accomplished in order just to make it through that day, you know, make sure all the planes were running and the candidate was fed and we got in the hotel room with our luggage and just the sheer logistical demands of, you know, being in a primary campaign sort of kept myself and other my other colleagues that were traveling sort of outside the internecine, you know, fighting that was going on at the campaign headquarters. But I think there was a lot of there was a lot of division. Were you also responsible for the press and moving them around and making uh, travel Early on, yeah, early on in the process I was. But as time went by, you accumulate a lot of staff people that take on that role for you. You know, at, the, you know, at, at one point, I forget exactly when, we went from traveling on you know, relatively small jets to a big 737 flying pig, we called it. This is a piece of junk. And barely, <laughs> barely could stay in the air, but... <laughs> was the campaign plane. And um, so, and that's when you start getting, you know, a lot of the press traveling with you. And as a result, you get a whole new crew of people that are assigned to handle the press, the caring, feeding the press. So I sort of became much more detached from, you know, having to deal with the day-to-day demands of the press. And you had a separate staff that really made sure they had their food and their baggage and their buses and, you know, that was required for them. So you were still Dole's right-hand man. Uh Yep, during that came campaign, although I had a lot more, as time went by during this whole period, I had, you know, I got a lot more, um, my responsibilities became more, and I had more experience that I could speak to as to how to do things, you know, in the logistical matters, 
and I was starting to become sort of an institutional memory for him because I had been every place he had been for the past then three years, you know, later ten years. And so um, I think I all also had sort of a role as an extra brain that could remember a lot of details about what it, uh, people that he knew or what people's names were or what context he knew them from, from previous times where he'd been to a particular state or city that I think I could also help him, uh, you know, just day-to-day interactions with people. I could remind him, you know, where when we had been there. Because I also had, had and have... Um, uh, some success in recalling details about names, and places, and time frames, and so forth. So I think that was, I don't know if I learned that from him or if I already had it, but it was useful to him, I think, in that regard, too. So let's move to 96. To nine, the 96 campaign. The 96 campaign was a much different experience than 88 because by that time, he had 94, in the aftermath of 94 elections, he became the sort of the titular head of the party. And so, you know, one of his great comments that he made in January of 95 that I thought was always uh, one of the great ones was he said, well, Bill, uh, the good news is that Bill Clinton's now having his honeymoon. The bad news is that I'm his chaperone. (laughs) So (laughs) it was clear that the Dole and Clinton were going to be, were an item, you know, from that time on. And we're going to be, you know, from going forward. And so, it, you know, in retrospect, now it didn't seem that unusual at all that he was going to become the nominee. I mean, he was, I think from that point forward, he became the front runner for the nominee and always, to become the nominee and always was. So it was a much different scenario than he had been in 88 with the Bush, you know, vice presidency sort of, and his, you know, being the man, wearing the mantle of the Reagan presidency. And there was nobody like that this time around. And so, it was a much different experience. It was a lot more. Now, at the same time, of course, it wasn't an open seat like 88, where there was a much better chance of winning, uh, you know, taking on an incumbent presidency and under any circumstances is um, challenging. But, become, but becoming the Republican nominee seemed to be relatively early on to be a given because we by far had the best organization. He'd already won the Iowa caucuses before. Um, he was all, also rel- always rel- also, always already well-known in New Hampshire and many of the other states because we had been more or less campaigning nonstop since between that 88 and 96, which was a you know, long period of time. And he had a fundraising machine that was in place that he inherited, you know, some of which he'd inherited from the Bush people and some of which he'd already built up over the years of his own. So it was apparent early on that uh, neither political support nor funds were going to be particularly challenging uh, in the 96 cycle. So it was a much more, uh, he had a lot more infrastructure uh, within the Republican Party supporting his candidacy in 96 than we had had sort of being the insurgents, if you will, in 88. So it was a much, uh, it was a much more fun experience, mostly because you just had a lot more support and you had a lot more money. And uh, there was also a sort of a sense of inevitability around his candidacy that certainly hadn't been present in 88 or 80 or 76 for that matter. But once he got the nomination, then, uh, or maybe even before, again, there were some issues with the campaign staff. Yeah, there, there always were. Um, and, you know, there was, I think there was also, not only were the issues within the campaign, I think there's issues also within the, um, 
There's, all, there's all, always was a certain tension between the campaign staff and the Senate staff because they were, both of them, you know, by the time 95 started progressing, both of them had become, well, the Senate staff was fairly fixed size, but it was the majority leader's office in the Capitol. It was very prestigious, and he had this personal office, and he also had, you know, a large number of um, patronage positions that he appointed people to, and so there was a large number of people in the Capitol and in Washington who were, you know, providing his uh, infrastructure, if you will, and then growing up, you know, very rapidly, sort of beside that was this campaign um, people. And, you know, I sort of was always kind of had a foot in both worlds, but many people did not, just because I had been around for so long by that time. But most people did not, and it's one of the things I've always sort of found remarkable about Washington and campaigns and politics is that they're really completely, in my view, they're really completely separate enterprises, the public policy-making uh, machinations in the Capitol and in the Senate and the House and then the campaign side of it that I always found that they were clearly different and they had totally different ways of op operating. Some people think that you, that they're transferable and some people have tried to go between them but I found that it's really not possible and they're really not, you can't really do both. I think that's one of the conflicts that had always been present so you had sort of a tension between the campaign people who were in most large part were professionals and had been in the campaign business and then the Senate people who also wanted to participate in the campaign but they but had never didn't necessarily have experience in it so I think there was also always sort of a struggle between the the people that were heading up both sides of the operation and that Senator Dill himself was clearly you know in both worlds uh, but there was also always a constant demand for his time and attention to both worlds I mean it's to him running, being the, you know, the leading nominee for the presidency and leading the Republican majority in the Senate at the same time was an exceedingly huge burden. I mean, the amount of paperwork that, you know, we would leave the campaign for a week, and this was really, not, the real, uh, really still, most of the paper was coming to us by fax at that time. So one of the major struggles that I had and other was trying to get volumes of paper, you know, faxed to wherever we were going or onto the plane wherever we were because I was also sort of the gatekeeper for all the paper. So all the paper, you know, for the, all, the Senate majority leader had to come through me to get to him to make decisions too. So that became a terrible struggle was just de dealing with the sheer paperwork, volume of work that was required by his Senate responsibilities. So you're trying to do the Senate Majority Leader and you're trying to concentrate running for president was a great, you know, great struggle, very difficult. And you were always thought of yourself as being on the campaign side. Yes, correct? I really did. Uh, and also in the, I also, in the 96th campaign in, for, in particular, I was in the political division of the campaign because I always thought that that was sort of my greatest strength that I brought was the institutional memory that I had developed over the years of the governors and the senators and the congressmen that he knew and the county chairman that he knew and had known, you know, o over all these years that we had been traveling. So I always thought that my greatest advantage was to, was to sort of be his institutional memory for all the political context that he was in in whatever particular state we were in. So, and I knew all, you know, I, during that period, we'd been to all the states so many times over the intervening years that n 
nowhere we went did I not know somebody who was in the room from my, our previous experience. You know, in a lot of these states, particularly the smaller ones, it's a rev- relatively small group of people who are activists, you know. And once you get to know them, they pretty much didn't change much over the years either. So I became sort of the guy that everybody knew from the past, regardless of how many new people there were, you know, from the campaign. So even though I had an excellent relationship with his staff in the Senate, with his chiefs of staff and this other staff people, I always uh, was pretty much squarely in the campaign world, I thought. Or at least that's how I viewed myself, because that's really where I would, you know, that's where I was. I, I guess I need to ask you about the, the the PAC side of the Bob Dole enterprise. Right. Uh, just describe that a little oh, bit. Oh, the Political Action Committee. Mm-hmm. So, and where that figured in with the campaign and how yeah. all these parts sort of went together okay. or didn't go together. Right, right. So I, there were really three main political operations that I worked for during the whole period, except, except for the time I was his state director. There was this... Senate re-election campaigns, that had a fairly narrow and discreet purpose, was to raise money to pay to run his re-elections to the Senate. The presidential campaigns, again, were fairly, uh, you know, clear on what the objectives of raising money for that was to advertise and to pay for the road show and to get him, you know, win primary states and general elections. The PAC is sort of, the PACs at that time, and I think still are, particularly what are called leadership PACs, which are sponsored by... Um, people who hold leadership positions in the Senate or the House were sort of a bridge between those two things. So in many ways, a federal leadership PAC was sort of a precursor to a presidential campaign. It gave a potential candidate the ability to raise money that he could use both to give to other candidates to help get them reelected and to subsequently build up chits that presumably could be traded in later on the presidential campaign. And it also gave the, you the ability to pay for your travel to go and campaign and get that earned media and to raise the money for other candidates, again, to earn you know, earn their obligations to you, which you may or may not call in later, or you know, and for the good of the party, which was you know, largely his motivation. And it also gave the ability to hire staff that you could use as political operatives uh, to help candidates at the local level, and in many cases, those same people became operatives for the presidential campaign. So, it was sort of the PACs are sort of a stalking horse, or they take the place of a of a formal presidential campaign, perform many of the same functions, but provide you the uh, economic support to travel, support other candidates, and to keep your you know raise your profile while you're either running for president or preparing to run for president. You know, so it's sort of a political operation to operate, you know, a bridge in between campaigns, if you will. But I think they're quite widely, at the time, they were very widely used uh, to finance political activity. I guess skeptical people say all this money going around and all this activity and whatnot can easily make me uncomfortable. Did, did you ever sense with the Dole operations that these were anything but above board? Uh, no, not really. I mean, we were all, op- you know, it was all op- operating within the laws that existed at the time, arcane as they may be. And there were a lot, I will, you know, I, it would be dishonest to say there weren't some significant loopholes in the campaign law that allowed, uh, you know, some things that otherwise would not have been possible to do. Um but, 
you know, one of the things that was most remarkable about Senator Dole during this whole period, and I think, you know, I don't know how he was able to do this, but to his credit, he never engaged in fundraising, never asked anybody for money. Like, typically candidates for any office, a large part of their job is to sit at a desk with a list of people and get on the phone and ask those people for money. And I think that was something he was never comfortable doing, and he never did, as far as I know. Throughout all this time, when he was Senate Majority, running for president twice, he always had the ability to get to have other people do that work for him. And so I found that he was never really conflicted by, you know, personally by anybody because he never asked anybody for money personally. So I don't know how he was able to pull that off during this whole period, but, you know, at different times it was sort of notorious and became sort of a running joke about, well, did you send him the call? You know, I would leave every weekend with a call list of people he's supposed to call and ask to raise money, and he would never call any of them. And so I'd go back and turn it in and say, uh, he didn't call anybody. <laughs> to much of the frustration of the fundraising uh, team at every every time. So so who were the people making the calls? Was oh, Joanne Coe was a major fundraiser that people, you know, her different roles. And Kirk Clinkenbeard, who was a guy I worked with, was, the, you know, always a finance guy. And then as you know, the as the campaigns get larger, you after a while you have large staffs of people, both locally and nationally, whose responsibility it is to both uh, speak to people who raise a lot of money themselves and to organize events in the states, you know, to raise money. So it was all it was something that fundraising part. You, you, of course, you, we attended thousands of fundraisers. I mean, that's was required, but sort of the nitty gritty. Uh, you know, begging for money, he never did, never had to do. And so, I, to his credit, I don't know how he was able to get, a, you know, pull that off over all these years, but he did. And so, I, don't, I think there was much less of a conflict for him than there may be for others. What adjectives come to your mind uh, to describe the 96 hour marathon at the oh. end of the 96 campaign? Oh, oh wow. Uh, well, you know, I was, uh, it was exhausting and it was exhilarating. And it was exciting, and it was depressing, and it was a lot. It was a lot of things for me. It was a particularly difficult uh, period because I had some. Um, I can recall the first night of the ninety-six hours. We were in Columbus, Ohio, and I had it. I was having terrible dental pain. Matter, you know, when you're campaigning like this for so many consecutive months, you never get to take care of any personal business. And so I had this tooth problem, and it had gone on gone so bad to the point that the night that we started the '96 campaign, I was one of the we were in Columbus, and one of the Secret Service agents was from Columbus, and it turns out his wife was a dentist, and so she opened her office I think at 10 p.m. the first night of this campaign, and I got a root canal at 10 p.m on the beginning of the 96 hour campaign and so I was that was a that was a nightmare and so I went through that whole period with the having just had a root canal on top of having campaigned nonstop for 12 months on top of you know not sleeping so it was you know <laughs> the only thing that was you know really kept me going was that I knew it was going to end you know that I knew and I could you know sort of count the hours until it was going but you know um you know, several, at several points, you know, being at a, I think I can recall being in, I don't even remember the cities particularly, but I think there was an airport rally in Denver at like 3 a.m. 
and there was just thousands of people there, and I couldn't believe that these people had showed up, you know, for this in the middle of the night, and it was cold. And, you know, another, I live in New Jersey now, and another moment I recall uh, that was quite remarkable was the TikTok Diner, on, which is in New Jersey. It's a typical diner off a, you know, a highway, and again, I think we were there at 6 a.m., and there was just tens of thousands of people uh, showed up uh, in the, you know, basically in the middle of the night for a political rally. So, um, you know, the whole idea of trying to campaign for 96 hours straight was just ridiculous on the face of it. But then when he decided that he wanted to do it, you know, we're all just sort of along for the ride. (laughs) So, um, you know, for bits, I really, I, I really didn't sleep the whole period just for bits and pieces you know, I would lay down on the floor of the plane and try to sleep for like 15 minutes at a time, but I really couldn't because I was in such pain, you know, f- physically also. So, you know, I at several points I had I was had some you know interesting hallucinations, and you know I was it was an extreme condition, but I kept going and I you know I I made it. It started in Columbus, and where did it end? Uh, I think it. You know, that's a good question. I think it ended in Kansas. I think. But, you know, that the 96 hours really wasn't the end because it ended the morning of Election Day, and we still had to go through Election Day and Election Night. So I think I counted up at one time that I actually was awake 112 hours straight, you know, before I actually went to bed on Election Night. So a fitful sleep because we had just lost. So it wasn't – that was very difficult. But, you know, it was a great – sort of a great exercise in um, extreme behavior to sort of push, you know, see – how much the human body and the mind can, you know, take without breaking. So we all, you know, I didn't go mad. <laughs> so I thought I sort of won, you know, <laughs> that I had finished the campaign, not, you know, been driven to the asylum. <laughs> Did you and the senator ever, senator ever get sort of closure at the end of the 96 campaign? Um, yeah, I think we did, although I went, you know, I stayed on and worked for him a very short period after that. Uh, but, you know, we really did. I decided to go sort of take a sabbatical, not immediately, but probably six months after that. And I went to stay in um, Arizona for several months to get sort of try to get as far away from, you know, that whole traumatic and, you know, exhilarating exercise that had occurred. And before I left, he um, threw a dinner for like a going away dinner where he invited all of our closest friends, mine and some of his, at the Watergate Hotel, and there was a few hundred people there, and it was sort of like a going-away party uh, that he threw for me. So I thought that was that was sort of a uh, way, I think, of him saying goodbye, you know, although I never really left and I'm still around. But that was sort of the end of that relationship that had started, you know, 12 years earlier. So... Just comment a bit on on your own personal life during that period, or is that just was that on hold the whole time? Or uh, yeah, pretty much on hold the whole time. I never really had any, um, you know, I had a, kept apartments, but I traveled full time, so I was never really able to have uh, like you know girlfriends or long term relationships during any of that period because I was just gone and mostly on the weekends. So it was really tough to have a personal life almost for that entire period. Um, and so, in my apartment, it was really the place I just kept my clothes, so I could go back, you know, exchange them for the next <laughs> trip. So, it wasn't much of a home, but it was a good storage. So, um, uh, 
So I really didn't have, you know, develop much of a personal life at any of that time. I stayed single the whole time, never got married until, um, although the one, as a matter of fact, just last week I was with my uh, wife in New York and Senator Dole was at an event and we were, he introduced me to some other people from Kansas that he knew were at this event and we were sort of reminiscing about the 96 campaign and my wife was there who I had met on the 96 campaign. She worked for Dole for president as well. She was from New Jersey is how I got there. So uh, his comment was, well, I lost, but Mike won. And so that's sort of, and so I sort of feel that way because I met the woman I've now been married to 10 years uh, on the Dole 96 campaign. So uh, that was a, you know, there was a happy ending for me personally. After all those years of uh, not having a personal life, I finally got one. So <laughs> lucky for me. Um, characterize uh, your work with, with Senator Dole since 96. Well, I, um, so I worked on his, um, he, w- he went to a law firm immediately thereafter where I was a consultant to the firm for a number of months. And one of the things he started doing at that time was doing a lot of overseas travel. So, and he worked on a number of um, both client development and also during that period he became chairman of a group that's called the ICMP or the International Commission on Missing Persons. And so I was sort of an advisor to the ICMP. And so for the period of 97 and 98 and 99 and uh, 2000, I think, was his chairmanship, um, He, re- even though I moved to New York in 98, I still was able to arrange with my employer there that I could work with him on this ICMP project. So during that period, I traveled with him regularly to Europe and to the uh, former Yugoslavia and Bosnia and Herzegovina to um, work on that project, which was very fascinating and was able to travel widely with him in Europe during that period. So the ICMP was really an organization that was, their goal was to try to help the families of the people who went missing during the Bosnian War. Some 25, 30,000 people basically disappeared in a very short period of time, and most of them were murdered and buried in mass graves. And so his he was there really to try to provide some comfort and closure to the families of those people. So we spent a lot of the time meeting with families of people whose, you know, husbands and sons and daughters had just disappeared. So for it was a major humanitarian undertaking, and he was a leader of this group. And so that was a really great experience for me personally to not only to be able to travel in Europe and in that area widely and still have my association with him, but I've... Um, it gave me. I was able to spend some time with him, and also learn a great deal about Yugoslavia and Europe. So that was a real great experience. I went to um, all over the all over the globe with him during that period. So you had mentioned that you'd been to so many countries with mm-hmm. Senator Dole. Yes, and I don't. I don't think we can give the same attention to that as we've <laughs> done to these other matters. Yes, but uh, coming as yourself from Kansas and with the with this. Midwest's approach to life. Yes. Uh, what are your observations about Dole on the international scene? Uh, you know, what was always remarkable to me is about how well, how widely he was known in uh, other countries. So, you know, I guess it sort of, it sort of uh, impressed me that what the impact of the national media, the American media is and worldwide because, you know, particularly with the onset of the, nas- with the uh, cable and the international cable, so that his image and his, uh, I get, since this was, you know, on the heels of the 96 campaign, it was remarkable how well known he was in virtually every com- country we went to. 
And even during that period, he was a private citizen, was no longer in office. But it was all—it was remarkable to me the ease by which he was able to gain access to world leaders even then, and the esteem that he was held by, you know, presidents and heads of state in a number of countries, and his ability to get access to them, whether for his private clients or for these humanitarian efforts, I found to be, you know, just remarkable. And, you know, of course, his behavior towards other people never changed. I think I described earlier how he was really, it was sort of indifferent to a person's station in life. He always treated everyone he met with respect. And I, that also, you know, I found that to be true also in these, you know, countries, whereas in particular in uh, Bosnia, <clears throat> with the former Yugoslavia, he would either you know, he would be sitting with one of these mothers whose child had been murdered and buried in a mass grave <clears throat> and treat her with great respect and, you know, take her very seriously and also meet with, you know, uh, Milosevic and, you know, with equal, you know, with equal amount of respect. I mean, he was very firm and tough with Milosevic, but still his ability to sort of deal with both ends of the spectrum on a political issue of that magnitude I found just remarkable. Did you travel with him to the site of his injury in Italy, or was that? You know, I never. That's one place I never went with but him. But you did it. You did accompany him to D, uh, Normandy. In the I did not. Oh, I thought you did. No, ninety-four. No. no, that's okay. one period. I was actually ninety-four. I was in Kansas still, working for his PAC, right. Campaign America, and sort of organizing for the uh, ninety-four election cycle. So that is not a trip that I made with him. Um, how do you think he'll be remembered? Uh, you know, I think, and I do talk to other people about that now, but I think in retrospect he'll be man, uh, remembered as a man of uh, great character and intellectual honesty. And, you know, one of the things that's most remarkable, particularly in this day and age, is that, you know, at no point was he really tarred by any scandal, you know, personal or political, ever which, you know, my, maybe I'm just sort of my, you know, being, I'm not objective because of my closeness to him for this long period of years, but I sort of view the a lot of the political leadership I see now in the country, and, and, and it's sort of remarkable to me that he was able to uh, stay in the public eye for so many years and retain his uh, positive, you know, other people's positive view of him without know, really being marred by any sort of bad behavior. So, uh, sadly, like to say, that's probably one of the most remarkable things about him, I think, is that is, you know, he's really was untouched by any sort of scandal and t not tainted in any way, and really will be remembered, I think, as a great uh, statesman. You know, I think that's one of the things you'll find when talking to people who might have, and I've found over the years, who know of my association with them, even people who are on the opposite extremes, uh, politically or ideologically, will always speak to his uh, greatness of his character, and that that he always did what he believed was right. And I think that's probably what, you know, his his uh, he'll be remembered as. You know, a lot. Interestingly, my experience with him, although I spent a lot of time in the Capitol with him, one of the, I think probably uh, one of his greatest capabilities, which probably isn't widely recognized as his, his skill as a legislator, was, was just legendary. It was remarkable, his ability to get people to compromise and come together to agree on, you know, making public policy. And I think that's one of his great legacies that the Dole Institute in particular is trying to, 
I know it's trying to highlight that it is possible to disagree but get along. So I think that's probably his most remarkable uh, achievement is his ability to bring people together. And how will you remember him personally? Well, you know, I um, one of the great, one of my personal memories of him is, and I think always will be, is that he was a really strong uh, sort of a father figure to me in many ways. You know, a lot of these, during a lot of this time, um, I was always felt to be a member of the family. And, you know, for many of these years, he went to Russell on a regular basis, and I was always included, you know, when he went and spent time with his family, and I was always there too. And, you know, one particular memory that still uh, strikes me is when his brother Kenny died, and, and which, you know, Kenny was a very close to him. And I knew Kenny well too, and I always made great pains to go visit Kenny as much as I could in Russell when I was in Kansas. And, uh, you know, I sat, I sat with the family at, at uh, Kenny's funeral, which is something I'll always, you know, I'll never forget that I felt like I was really included as, you know, some of the, as a member of the family for a lot of that period. So that's probably my legacy is that I'll always be, that my relationship to him was not really, you know, that as a staff member to a boss, but more of like a friend or, you know, that, and I think that I've heard him refer to, uh, to me, to others as being his friend too. So that's probably... That's, you know, probably the legacy I'll come away with is that I was really not only just a, you know, an employee, although I was for most of the time, but more that I, and now, you know, in these years since I haven't been, which has been, you know, 10 years, that, uh, you know, I've been more of a friend to him than, than anything. Before we started today, you spent about a half hour, I guess, with mm-hmm. him. I uh, did. Kind of a reunion, although this happens fairly regularly, yes. I guess. Yes, What do you chat about? Uh, you know, he loves to talk about politics, and so I tr- pay great attention to it as well, and always have. Um, and in New York and New Jersey, in particular, he's you know there's always something to talk about it, uh, pol- pol- politics-wise. And you know, presidential campaign is underway now, so we have a lot you know that we can compare. You know what uh, what is going on then, went on then, and what's going on now with the candidates. And uh, in particular today, we are sort of reminiscing at length about uh, President Nixon. He, as a matter of fact, he made a copy of some handwritten notes that Nixon had made about um, Senator Dole's strength and uh, strengths as a candidate when he was running for president in '88. And so, um, I reminded him on a couple of occasions where he and I had gone to Nixon's home in New Jersey and to talk politics with him. So that was sort of today's reminiscence. So. Um, that, you know, that's just an example. So um, we mostly talk about politics, and he always asks about my family. I have children, so he always asks how they're doing, and about my wife. So, and sort of planning to the, for the future. For example, today he's going to go to uh, Kansas, I think, in the next month or two. To They've been trying to get him to go there, I think, for some time to dedicate a highway and a building that they named after him. So I, I told him I would, if he needed a sidekick, I would try to arrange my schedule to go with him, which I haven't done in 10 years. So... Something to look forward to. Uh, yeah, right. So I thought I could, I, I would have fun doing that. So, you know, a lot of the times in the past, too, I helped organize an event for the Dole Institute here in Washington. So in the past couple of years, I was able to, you know, we, talk, we talked a lot about that, too, and planning that, so that was fun. But there's always politics to talk about, and he loves it. And he always pays very close attention to what's going on in the campaign, so do I. So we can always have something to talk about. Good. <laughs> have we left anything unsaid, do you think, today? Well... 
Uh, you covered a lot of territory. So, no, not that I can uh, remark on, but, uh, you know, it's Any been... Any other comment or observation? Well, you know, the one, this the one, sort of the one that I made at the beginning, which was, you know, one of the great, one of the great satisfactions I've had in my life is not only my association with him, but that, you know, a guy like him made it possible for a guy like me. I was, had lost my parents when I was very young and lived in Kansas and was, you know, destitute in rural Kansas, yet I had an interest in politics and I sort of had a dream that I could, you know, become uh, active in it. And Senator Dole was sort of the dominant figure, so that was sort of what I hitched my dream to him. And the fact, you know, it just shows what a great country America is, that I could have that dream and that it could actually come true to the extent that it has, you know, and that I could have been able to develop this relationship with this you know, one of the towering figures of our time I find just uh, remarkable. And I've had a lot of personal success in my life uh, since during the time I worked for him and since then, and I attribute much of it to the sort of his character and his things that he taught me about the, you know, the right way to treat other people and, to, and a sense of fairness and a sense of you know, moral uh, behavior that's proper that it's paid off for me too. So, uh, you know, that sort of goes to sort of the father figure that he, he has been uh, to me and how he's always, always set an example, not as a powerful, you know, person in the world, but, as a, but in the way that you treat other people that you meet, regardless of their station. So that's what I sort of try to remind myself every day in my everyday life is to try to do that like he did. So That's good. Mm-hmm. That's very good. So I'm proud of that. Good. Okay. Thank you. Okay. That was wonderful. Did I passed my test. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, most of these interviews, I wish he was going to have the time to listen to them. <laughs> I, bet he would, I bet he would enjoy that. I think so, yeah. No, that was great. Okay, I good. I really appreciate it.